education happens in the form of a conversation that is illuminating certain ideas to them, but without it seeming like, okay, sit back, the professor is about to go to work teaching <laughs> stuff, right? It's more about like, here's what, I, here's what my thought process is. What do you think? What do you like? Let's work this together. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jeff Stevens. Today, we're learning all about seller financing. What is seller financing? Why is it such a powerful tool for real estate investors? And then on the flip side, why in the world would a property owner, why would a seller finance their property to you? We're going through all of that, all those questions that sellers might have, how Jeff teaches his students to walk sellers through the process of what seller financing is, solving their problems, focusing on fishing in the right ponds and everything around that. Seller financing is a very powerful tool, or can be a very powerful tool for real estate investors, but only if you know how to use it, only if you know how to find those opportunities or make those opportunities happen for you. Great conversation. He has a wealth of knowledge on this topic, and you're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor, and to date, I've acquired, invested in, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate. Specifically, we focus on apartments and self-storage. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're doing it. That's when we're helping you escape the Wall Street casino. Once again, our guest today is Jeff Stevens. We're talking all about seller financing. Let's go. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to dig into your wealth of experience in real estate investing and seller financing. But for our listeners out there who don't know about you, your business, and your background, can you tell us about what you do, where you come from, how you got started in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. I got started in real estate as slowly as a part-time thing in about 2006. So it's been about 17 years for me now. And my wife and I, we had just bought our own primary residence and a couple years passed and you know, it, it had appreciated. So we thought, well, gosh, let's go buy a rental property because I too had read that purple book that's on your shelf behind you. And I thought, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing to do with some of this equity we just we just gained. And so that kind of set us off on our first trajectory for the first few deals. It was, you know, just a, you know, a little bit here and there, very much a part-time thing. We had a marketing agency was our, as our primary business. But then in about 2013, so about 10 years ago now, then I said, you know what, I'm ready to be done with the marketing business. This real estate thing sure has fascinated me as a part-time thing for a while. Now let's make that the full-time focus for, so for the last 10 years, I've just been a full-time real estate entrepreneur, as I like to call it. And we do mostly long-term rentals and some, what I would call opportunistic flips. So I like to, you know, look at every deal that, that comes to me and figure out what do I think in this moment of time in the market, in this moment of time in my own business, what is the best plan for this particular property? And then we make those decisions accordingly, but I like to hold on to things whenever we can. Awesome. I appreciate that you lined out what's the most optimal thing in this market, but also in your business, because oftentimes the market and our business needs don't necessarily line up and we need to make a decision one way or another. But I don't want to, you know, bury the lead too long. Let's dive right into the topic of talking about seller financing. I've got some questions for you about it, but for our listeners who might not know about what seller financing is, can you describe that to us? Yeah, that, that's such a great place to start too, because 
that term can actually mean a lot of different things to different people. And another term that we hear a lot these days, especially is creative financing. So it's like, how do these things relate? The way that I think of it personally, and the way that I choose to articulate it is that creative financing might be something where if there's existing debt on a property, we actually incorporate that existing debt into our new deal structure as we're looking to acquire something. Whereas to me, seller financing is something where if there was any debt originally, and there might not have been at all, we're either going to pay it off or take it out in some manner. But seller financing effectively means I'm going to buy the property and I'm going to be making payments to the previous owner rather than going out and getting a loan from a third party outside entity. Great. Okay. That makes sense. But also I think that the, the, First question that people have about this is why would a seller want to finance a property to you? Like what's in it for them? There are a lot of other options for financing and you know, how do you, how do you get them to trust you and everything like that? But first off, why in the world would they want to finance a property to you? Yeah, it's such a great question. And there, there's actually quite a few myths that are kind of surround that, that I think are important to, to burst here in the, in the course of this conversation. So the simple answer is a seller sells you their property with seller financing when it's truly in their best interest to do so. Now, some people will say, some people will say, okay, so what you mean, Jeff, is when a seller is in a bind and they can't sell their property in any other way, then it's in their best interest and that's when they do it, right? And I would say maybe in some circumstances that that, that is true, right? Maybe the, the property is difficult to finance because it's physical condition or it's location or it's lack of or you know lack of income or kind of anemic income stream perhaps but one of the, one of the things that people don't realize that I feel like I am a messenger out there to to try to convey is that there are plenty of sellers who are not in any type of distress whatsoever whose property is not in any kind of distress who either already realize or can come to realize pretty quickly that selling their property with seller financing is the best thing for them. So that begs the question, why? Like under what circumstances would this be the best thing for them? And there's a few simple categories. I'd say the biggest one that drives most of my deals personally is the seller is at a place in their life where if they were to sell their property, they would have a capital gains tax problem. And they're not excited about paying capital gains. And they're also not excited about the sort of default way to defer capital gains, which is a 1031 exchange. So if you meet somebody, for instance, who is at that stage in life, maybe they're about 70, they've had this rental property for a long time, it's been good to them, it's going well, but they say to themselves, you know, I'd kind of like to be doing a little something different. I'd like to be traveling more or spend more time with the grandkids who are a couple states away or playing more golf or whatever. Those people don't really want to just trade one responsibility for another in the form of a 1031 exchange, but they also don't want to just get a big gnarly tax bill and deal with that. So what are their other options? And an installment sale, which is another way of talking about a form of seller financing, is a great way for them to take the the pain of the capital gains tax and break it up over time so that it kind of eases it. So, you know, the main idea with capital gains tax is like you're going to get the bill as you receive the gain, right? That's why a 1031 exchange is great. You don't actually ever get the gain, so you don't receive the bill, right? It just goes to an intermediary and then to another property. Well, in the case of an installment sale, when they receive their principal gain back, that's when they'll be getting their tax bill. So if we structure it intelligently and thoughtfully such that they're getting that back in maybe small little increments, 
or delaying the receipt of a lot of it, that can really go a long ways towards helping with their capital gains tax situation. So capital gains is a huge one. Two more I'll hit really, really quickly. One is income. You know, a lot of people own rental properties because they like to have income, right? And they sell the the property. Now they're like, well, geez, what am I going to do? I liked the income. Maybe I don't feel great about the other income generating options out there. You know, I don't want to just go get a CD, but I'm not really a stock market kind of person. They're more Main Street folks like you and I are too. And then the the third reason, which is kind of related even to the second one is a lot of people don't know what to do with a big chunk of cash if it lands on their desk. You know, they it, it might feel like a burden to them. And a lot of people at this stage in their life, they're like, gosh, my own house is paid off. I don't really have a big need for this. I'm, I'm not really in the market to buy a yacht. What am I going to do with this? This feels like a burden. It feels like a, a project I don't want. And so all of those things come together and it really makes sense for them to consider receiving payments on their property over time. Okay. Okay. So on the capital gains tax one, that's what I've always wondered about because you're you're ultimately not reducing their liability or or deferring it indefinitely. You're just kind of splitting it up and spreading it out over the course of however many years you negotiate the the terms with them. And would you say like what percentage of of sellers are receptive to that? Noting that you mentioned is really intended for sellers that are maybe seventies and older and kind of looking, you know, sunset conditions. What who's really receptive to that? So I okay, I believe that the answer to receptivity is not so much about a demographic profile necessarily. Mm-hmm. I believe receptivity is much more about how we unpack the conversation. So I'm I'm not sure if that's where you want to go in our conversation here, but I would say to me, this is one of the sweet spots of of what needs to be discussed a lot more in, you know, the, the what I would call the thoughtful real estate investing sort of way of doing things. Because what most real estate investors do is they they identify, they hear somebody like me and they identify, oh, I want to buy properties with seller financing. So they show up and they're just like right out of the gate. They just make it, they might as well be wearing a t-shirt that says, I want to buy your property with seller financing. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold on. First of all, this is not about you. This is about the seller. It's not about even the seller's property. It's about the seller and how they think in their, their situation. And so what I mean by this is we have to unpack the conversation in a way that we elicit insights and clues from them, like almost like a diagnosis. We, we know that we're just thaunching at the bit to prescribe seller financing. I think that what we should do is this, right? But we have to elicit the insights and the feedback and the, the information from them such that when we go to present it back to them, this is where the receptivity part comes in. When we go to present it back to them, we can say, you know, you were telling me that you feel this way. You want to accomplish this thing. You're concerned about this thing. I was thinking, here's a proposal on how we could do that. And that's the seller financing proposal. But to me, receptivity is a, is a function of not coming in with our own agenda, just broadcasting, but actually kind of letting the conversation come to us and then proposing it responsively to them. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, that's really the, sounds like the salesmanship aspect of this strategy, if you will, understanding the seller's yeah. problem and, you know, trying to work them into seeing this as a solution to their problem. But I guess really we're, we're still, or at least I'm still stuck on the, the question of, okay, who is receptive or how do you get them to the point of receptivity to, to use that, that term? How do you, how do you get them there or know if you're even in the situation where they might be receptive? Like, how do you really address that problem of, of if it's the right fit? Okay. So another thing we have to be focused on is 
we have to be talking to the right kind of people who are likely to have the attributes that would make them receptive. So I always like to tell people, when you are intentionally looking to buy properties with seller financing, you're not shopping for a property. You're shopping for a person. Mm. You're shopping for a person who is a fit for seller financing. So what that means is what, what most people do, and, and of course, I mean, this, this makes sense. We can't fault people for doing this, but they're out shopping for the properties they want. Like, oh, here's some. Let me start asking questions about seller financing. But if we know that we want to buy properties with seller financing, instead, we would reverse the whole process and we would ask ourselves the question, okay, well, who are the people who would be good candidates for this, right? Okay. Oh, so it is, first of all, an absentee property, right? This, this capital gains tax situation is not going to be a big deal on someone's primary residence. Okay. So we're only talking to rental property owners. We're probably only talking to people who've owned the property for a, a while. You know, I'm thinking 10 plus years, right? You know, somebody who bought it last year isn't probably going to have a big issue with that. And and in certain areas and certain types of properties that we want to buy, right? So now we have a sense for who are the right people. It's sort of like going fishing in a pond. We want to know that we're going fishing in a pond that's stocked with the type of, of fish that we'd like to catch, right? The seller financing fish. So th that's a really important part of this conversation to eat upstream, you know, I guess fishing pun intended, <laughs> upstream of the whole salesmanship thing we just talked about is we have to make sure we're talking to the right people. But effectively, what most what most investors are doing who kind of get excited about seller financing is they're they're doing their normal process where they're just out in the market looking for properties they like. And they're just sort of tapping on a seller or an agent's shoulder going, what do you think? Seller financing? Oh, no. Okay. What do you think? Seller financing? And <laughs> those people... And again, like it's not, it's not a critical, it's just, that seems like the logical thing to do, but it turns out it's not. But that pro that approach will result in comments like, and we hear this all the time, seller financing just isn't that common in my area. I have asked so many sellers for seller financing and I've been turned down every single time. So that's where this sort of receptivity thing comes in is if the approach is a little bit random like that, inadvertently random, but a little bit random, receptivity is going to be low. But if we're fishing in a pond that's stocked with the right kind of people, receptivity can be pretty high. Okay, great. So you mentioned remotely owned properties. So not owner-occupied, but, but rentals, maybe owners who don't live in the area and folks mm -hmm. that have owned the properties for a while, maybe more than a decade. Are, are there any other important screening criteria that to you would mean that you're, you're, you're narrowing down your pond to make sure you're fishing in, in the right pond. There is another one that is very closely related here. It's slightly different, but closely related. Is it possible to buy listed properties with seller financing? Yes, it ab it's absolutely possible. But I would say categorically, this conversation, especially in this approach that I've described, it's, it's relationship oriented. It's about asking questions. It's about hearing those insights is much better done face to face one-on-one one -on -one without the intermediary sort of effect of having real estate brokers. So to me, that is the other major consideration here is that we should be putting ourselves in a position to talk to people directly rather than expecting that it's all going to be translated perfectly between or through through the course of multiple intermediaries. Because a lot of times when we're talking to, you know, we're talking to our agent who's talking to another agent who's talking to a seller the agents themselves can't help but bring their own sort of baggage or understanding or lack of understanding or assumptions or myths or whatever about this topic that can really, 
you know, put a, a, a throw a major wet blanket on the ability to have this kind of conversation. So I think this happens best in sitting in someone's living room, which also then speaks to just well, say one other just little thing about this is, can you do seller financing on a $40 million property like you might want to buy? Or does it have to be single family homes? Well, yes, you absolutely could do it on, on any size property. But to me, again, if the best version of this conversation happens in a living room, there becomes a, a probably a size or type of property where you're not going to find yourself in the living room. You're going to find yourself in a boardroom, right? So I, you know, if it's a $10 million property, you, you might not be sitting in the seller's living room. You might be, but you might not be also. So I think this works really, really well for, I just like to say properties that regular people own. And they might have an LLC or something, sure, but they're not going to have to get a corporate resolution to sell your, you know, sell you their property. Sure. And they don't have any investors to answer to or anything like that. It's their own money. They're maybe one or two decision makers if you're talking about a married couple. So, okay, really narrowing down, making sure we're fishing in the right pond. Great analogy. I'd also love to bring up just the, the, the idea or the process or the steps that you explain this to someone who, who might be receptive. Let's make for the purposes of this, you're, you're not explaining it to somebody who's totally stonewalling, somebody you think may be receptive yeah. to carrying a, carrying a note, doing seller financing, but, but they have no idea what you're talking about. They never heard of it before. You think it might be the right solution for them. How do you broach this topic and really explain it to them to, to help them be you know comfortable with the idea and receptive to it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. And again, I think like I'll, I'll give you, I have a, a proposal framework and I'll just give you the simple framework. But I, before I even say that, I think that where most people go wrong is they show up and they say, I need to educate the seller. And so they, they come with this sort of overt educational effort, you know, like here's a, here's a few pages of stuff I wrote or a PowerPoint deck or something like that. And I think that the edu it's, it's best done when it's education that doesn't seem like education at the conversation that is educating them, but not under the headline of like, let me now educate. So let me answer your question by giving you my simple proposal framework, because it does exactly what, you know, what you're asking. So to me, what I'm doing as I'm having a conversation with the seller is I'm, I'm, I'm playing the role of detective and sponge. I'm just taking in lots and lots and lots of information. I'm not even really giving much back. I'm certainly not reacting in the moment to what they're saying. I'm just, mm -hmm, okay, taking notes mentally. So when I go back to them and I say, let me, let me share with you a proposal. First of all, let me make sure I understand what I think you are trying to accomplish. So what I, what I believe you are trying to accomplish, you told me you really want to spend some time with your granddaughter, who's now two, you feel like she's growing up very quickly and she's two states away. And that's sort of giving you some, some heartburn. So you really want to get closer to her. You've had this property a long time and you actually care about these tenants. You like the idea of selling it, but you hate to give up the income. You're not excited about the capital gains tax bill. Does all of that sound right? Right. And then Fred leans in and says, yes, that's right. Thank you. You were listening. Wow. That's awesome. And I say, Fred, is there anything else that I forgot that is also important to consider too? And he says, no, no, you, you really got it. So those first two steps, confirm their goals, make sure there's nothing else, which there almost never is if you're doing a good job. But now you've got them nodding their head, right? You're like, yes, this guy understands me. The third thing is to say, okay, so here's how I went about this, Fred. I just took all this, you know, all these considerations. And I put them in the blender of my mind and I got myself a nice notepad and a great pen and a fresh cup of coffee. And I set to work figuring out how could we do this? How do we sell this property? Or how do I buy this property in a way that's not going to trigger this big tax bill, going to continue to give you income though, so you can spend time doing the stuff you want with your granddaughter. 
Does that sound like the right approach? And I said, yes, that sounds good. Then the fourth step is, then I say, great, so here's what I came up with. I, if the main goal is to make sure that you're not paying a big capital gains tax bill and you're continuing to get income, I'd like to suggest that I buy the property from you for $600,000. And I want to give you a down payment here. I'm going to suggest a $50,000 down payment because I think what's important is that it's big enough that you know I've got skin in the game, but not so big that you're going to have an unnecessarily large tax bill associated with getting that chunk of the gain back. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, that makes sense. That would leave then $550,000 on a promissory note. Now, we talked before about the income you're currently getting from this property. So I kind of worked backwards and I said, well, gosh, how can I make sure my payment is right about in that same strike zone of what you're used to getting? So I worked backwards. And as a result, what I think I should do is I should pay you interest of 4% with monthly interest-only payments. Interest-only because if you're getting principal each month, then you're also going to be getting a tax bill at the end of the year too. Does that sound good to you? Okay. Yes, it does. So what what I'm trying to do, okay. Yeah. Role play, conclude. Curtain, curtain comes to a close. But my point is the education happens in the form of a conversation that is illuminating certain ideas to them, but without it seeming like, okay, sit back. The professor is about to go to work teaching <laughs> you stuff, right? It's more about like, here's what, I, here's what my thought process is. What do you think? What do you like? Let's work this together. And I always like to tell people, I'm either metaphorically or literally, like, I'm going to hand you the red pen. I want to know what you think about this proposal I had. You don't need to counter me. I just want to, what, do, what, what felt right? What didn't feel quite right? What do we need to massage here to get this to a spot that would work for you? Okay, great. So I appreciate the, the way you illustrated that. In that particular case, you're paying interest only. That principal's not getting paid down, but someday he's going to want to get paid out or you're going to want to you know, reconfigure the deal in some way, refinance, whatever you're going to do. How do you handle that discussion of a, a balloon on the back end or extending and the term and you know, everything around that? Yeah, absolutely. So I tend to approach that conversation from the perspective of like, how long do they want this predictable, dependable income stream to go on? That's sort of part of it. Is there, is there a point in time in which like they're going to feel more comfortable with a, a bigger capital gains tax bill, right? Sometimes people see other financial things happening in their life and they think, oh, that's, I'll be in a really nice low tax bracket that year. That we should really make those things happen at the same time, for instance. Or they might say, I have other, some other maturity date on a balloon payment. And this year, I don't want it to be then. So let's put it at two years after that. So we take into consideration a few different things like that, but it does usually end up in being in some type of balloon payment. You could certainly, if what they wanted, and what worked for you was something that resulted in an amortized note that you know just fully paid itself off over the course of several years. You could absolutely do that as well. But the interest-only thing, you know, I'm, I'm coming to you from the West Coast. Cash flow is difficult here. So interest-only is kind of nice from my perspective. I mean, would I like to be paying principal down? Sure. But I need to make sure the deal sustains itself each month. So that's helpful from my perspective. And it does fit very logically into this idea of like, well, you're trying to punt your gain well into the future. So you don't want to be getting the principal back each month, but every deal is different. And we can, that's the beautiful thing about seller financing is there's like 80 million little things that we can just tweak with every single little, every single little term to create something that really works for everybody. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Before we go on to the last part of the show, I just have one, one topic that might be a whole can of worms, but I think it's worth asking is about 
the, the property taxes. How do you handle who's paying the property taxes? If you're handling making sure that they get paid, how do you build that confidence with the, the seller that you're going to make sure the property tax bill gets paid, you know, on time and in full and all of that? How's that all handled? Yeah. Yeah. So what I tell them at the beginning is there's a few things we're going to do to keep them in the loop and feeling comfortable with where everything is. One is we're, you're going to be named as a loss payee on our insurance policy. You're going to get lots of verification. You're going to get more mail from the insurance company than you want, I can assure you, <laughs> that verifies that, that that's happening. Secondly, every year I'm going to give you a copy of the property tax, you know, the, the, the zeroed out payment. We've paid the property taxes. And I explain because a lot of them don't necessarily know by default, you know, you might be in first position here, but the county is really in first position, right? So we, it's important that we make sure that you know that we're paying our property taxes. And so I'm going to give you a verification of that every year. So one of the things I actually do is I, as soon as we close a, a new note like that, I actually have a nice little binder made with their name embossed on it, a few sections in the binder, property taxes, insurance, you know, copy of the note and trustee, things like that. And I just, when I see them, I just bring them an update for that. Like, well, here's the property tax payment verification. It's three hole punch, just pop it in your binder, put it back on the shelf, you know? And we, so we try to provide some nice, nice white glove customer service for that kind of stuff. Okay. So one last one before we go on, actually. So in, in my business, you know, investors are always asking us about our track record. Have you done this before? You know, these types of deals, whatever. But in the seller finance space, when you're talking with sellers, how much do they care whether you've been, you've done a seller finance deal before, if you can demonstrate that, or is it kind of not relevant to a lot of them? Like, how does that factor in? Yeah. So I think it's, it is relevant to them, but I think the point it, there's a there's a, a strategic point at which we might bring that up. I don't mm. like in the first few minutes of a conversation, I don't want to say, oh, by the way, I reverse engineered this whole, this is not an accident. I've done this 20 times. <laughs> I don't, I don't want that to, to feel like the case at all. Right. So at the beginning of the conversation, yeah, I, I try, I just try to make sure that we're very relatable. I always tell like my, you know, coaching clients and stuff, we're trying to, we're positioning ourselves as peers. You know, we want them to feel safe because we're just fellow landlords like they are. It's not some you know, we're the lion, they're the gazelle with a distressed situation at all. It's not like that. We're just two people on the same level having a conversation. So that, that part's really important. But I believe that a, a seller financing loan is not applied for, it's auditioned for. And the seller will be deciding if they're comfortable with you by virtue of the way you're sitting in their living room, how you're dressed, if you're polite, if you offer to take off your shoes when you come in, you know, all of that kind of st stuff. And so they're pretty much like deciding, like like most of us do, right? They're deciding emotionally as much as logically, and then they're going to rationalize some things logically kind of at the end. So I find that at the end, as they're getting close to saying yes, then that's when some of that stuff might come up. And that's when I say, look, I don't even want you to say yes to that. I'm not even handing you a pen and anything to sign until I know you're really clear on who we are and you feel very good about that. I'd love to just send you a, you know, an email or put a piece of paper in front of you with a bunch of names and phone numbers, other people who receive payments from us every month, just call, see what your experience is, what their experience has been. And if you have any additional questions, let me know. And I find that that really tends to do the trick pretty well. Cause it's like, it's like social proof almost, you know, I have this, this sheet that I keep on, on the wall right next to me of a, a seller who I had this conversation with a couple years ago. And I, I sent her a sheet and she literally printed the sheet out. And then as she started calling people, she took notes on the page that I, she had printed out. And then she called me and she said, I've talked to all these people and they 
Like they've just got the best things to say about you. I wrote it all down. Could I scan my notes and send it back to you? And I said, oh my gosh, <laughs> I would love that. And when she sent it to me, you know, all of those notes saying like, oh yes, it's been perfect. Best deal I've ever done. You know, he's a boy scout, that kind of, all that kind of stuff was just, it was great reinforcement to me personally, but it felt, felt really good, but it really demonstrated like the snowball effect. If you do one and now you have a reference for the second, you do two and pretty soon you've got 10 or 15. You can say, look, talk to these people. I think, you know, that's, it'll be everything you need to know. Nice. Nice. I like that. I like the idea of a reference list. A lot of great information right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, Jeff, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah. So I think the best investment I made was one particular deal I did a couple years ago. And this speaks right into seller financing, right? I promise to keep this concise, Taylor. But when you buy a property with seller financing, you're actually buying two things. You're buying the property and you're buying the financing. These are both like assets, right? I know now technically you're like, oh, you borrowed money. That's a liability. But I mean, these are both good things that have their own intrinsic value. And as you get deeper into seller financing and learn some of the unique things that, that you can do with it, I call this supercharged seller financing, you realize that the property and the loan don't necessarily have to stay together forever. So you could buy a ho-hum property with an amazing loan and get rid of the property, but keep the loan. Or you could obviously buy a great property with a ho-hum loan, pay off the loan as soon as you can and keep the property. You could do any of these things. So my best, the best deal I ever did was one where it was a, it was a great property, just had, it was well-located, it had a lot of potential upside. And it was like a small multifamily, five-unit building. And we basically flipped it. It wasn't even the purpose of buying it, but the, better, the, the best part of the whole deal was like the property was good, but the financing was really good. And so we, we bought the property, we fixed it up, and we sold it later for, you know, like a year later for like maybe 25% more than we bought it or maybe 30%, something like that. So as a flip, it was awesome. But the best part is I sold that property like five years ago, but I still have the loan because I gave the loan a new piece of collateral somewhere else in my portfolio. So I had this very profitable flip, but I also had this extremely valuable and extremely flexible loan for you know, 10 years at 4% interest only. Like, this is not the kind of loan you want to pay off. I want to keep this in my portfolio. So I did. And that's what made it the best deal is I really bought, it was like two, two home runs or two, you know, triples anyway, in one deal, the property was a triple or a home run and the, the financing was, and I, you know, did what I needed with the property and got rid of it, but I'm still using the money today. Very cool. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. The one, the one that still hurts 
the most is was was a flip that I did early. So it was after I I started doing real estate full time, but before I sort of had I guess really knew what I was doing and adopted <laughs> my current approach and everything. And it was it was a flip that ended up losing about twenty five thousand dollars. But I learned an important lesson, which I think I'll save for for your next question. But you know, it was just something where we didn't properly understand the maybe marketplace. I learned the hard way that a property, if a property looks on a map like it's on a busy street, even if it's not, that's bad because people tend to look first at things like on on the internet and a map says, oh, the, the pin there says, oh, it looks, it's, it's on the highway. If it's not even on the highway, but it kind of looks like it is, that's that's a problem. So that was a flip that came with some valuable lessons. Wow. Well, that kind of leads into my favorite question. Our last question here, what is the yeah. most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? So in this case, what I learned there that I, I think, I honestly think about this a lot still, and it does apply in lots of different contexts as well. You know, in, in real estate, we talk about the word COMP a lot, right? Comp. And when people say comp, what they mean is comparable property. But what I learned from that bad flip experience is that comp also is the beginning of the word competition. And so what I, what I learned in this case was that when I was putting a product on the market, now this applies whether I'm putting a unit for rent on the market, whether I'm putting a property for sale on the market, I have to remember that my property, my product doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, it exists in a field of other things that other people would consider to be alternatives. So when I bought this bad flip, we were looking at comps in terms of comparable properties and I think that we probably, you know, accurately said, oh, look, the other ones that kind of look like this are priced in this way. But what I didn't properly think about was that when we put it back on the market, it didn't matter exactly if the math says, oh, the other comparable properties are like this. The real question was the buyer for a property like this, what do they consider their other options to be? I need to understand if my product is sitting on the shelf, like what's the other stuff sitting on the shelf around it? Because the buyer, the user, the renter is going to consider my product in light of the alternatives. And so I think about this all the time now, whether it's like we're just renting, you know, we're, we're pricing a, an apartment because we need to release it or we're pricing a, a five unit building or, you know, what are the other choices? And then how will our products stack up to those other choices? So comp equals competition as well as comparable. That is a great point. I think for Rental property owners, those of us leasing out property, it's important to remember that as well. What are our tenants looking at in terms of what are they going to get for their dollar? What's our competition look like? Great point. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all these lessons. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah, thank you so much. You can check out my podcast called Racking Up Rentals, where we kind of talk about this relationship-oriented thoughtful approach to working with working with sellers and buying properties with seller financing. And otherwise, I'm, I'm known as the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur. So it's easy to find me. I'm very active on Facebook. It's easy to find me online looking up the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your ratings and reviews and your comments. 
I just get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.